Hello, welcome to the Guernsey Press Politics Podcast. My name is Helen Bowditch and my two guests to shoot the breeze with me this week are Ben Craddock from the Guernsey Bicycle Group and Deputy Peter Roffey. Thank you both very much for coming in. Welcome Should we start with you, Ben? Because um, there was an interesting piece that you wrote in the press, an interesting column that you wrote about the need for more cycling infrastructure in Guernsey. What sort of reaction have you had to your piece? Mostly positive, I would say. In fact, I'm going to say 80% positive wow. because I think... Everybody in their heart of hearts knows it needs to happen and knows there's a serious problem to be solved on multiple levels. But the biggest challenge, and this speaks to Guernsey's problem, is is how do you assemble it into a plan that's going to work for everybody and for the whole island? Um, and, you know, what we, what we, I think, achieved in that piece the other day was, was setting out why it matters. And actually, it's not too hard to do this if you join all the dots up. And practically, what, I mean, what sort of things, what tangible things would you like to see? Right. Well, you've got the... Biggest problem areas are housing delivery, particularly in the north of the island, because actually the road infrastructure, as we know, cannot take many more vehicle movements. There is also uh, the issue around schools. I mean, fundamentally, we've got kids and cars sharing pavements around Capels and other schools and other areas, which is not right for so many reasons. So those are the two biggest problem areas to, to solve. The value they unlock is obviously public health value, economic activity, um, you know, delivering on climate objectives. But how do you do it on an island that is really really tight with the road network with ribbon developments you can't uh you know you can't simply find new land to do a lot of this stuff so what's needed is a it's it's a holistic look at the island road network and looking at where you have quiet routes and where you can send walkers cyclists off down those quiet routes and where those opportunities don't exist you then look at interventions and traffic calming measures where they have to cross busier junctions and if you start to build a network on that principle, it will actually come together pretty easily. And, you know, interesting example. So Greater Manchester, the B-Line network, um, they took a view that a road with less than six vehicle movements a minute, 20 miles an hour or less speed limit, well, that is a quiet route. That's probably safe to walk along. We've got a lot of that here in Guernsey. So you start to plot that map, you start to look at the pinch points, and all of a sudden a network opens up. And then you've got you know, Fontaine site, for example, or some of the housing sites right around here. There, where you do have open land, you can start to put more deliberate routes through. But the point is, it's not too difficult to join it all up. And Deputy Roffey, I know you're a keen cyclist because I see you sometimes on your bike and I do wave, but I think you're, you're blissfully uh, <laughs> ignorant of me. I'm, I'm not willfully <laughs> snobbing you, honestly, but yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I am a keen cyclist, but I'm also really keen to, to hear about these sort of plans from the Housing Action Group's point of view, because uh, Ben's right, it, it is an issue that um, we are so densely developed that traffic is always raised as an issue. Whenever a new site is earmarked for development, even if it's a, a housing target area that's been identified for the decade or more, neighbours will say the traffic situation is already difficult around here, this is just going to add to it. Well, we can't afford not to build new homes. We can't leave people homeless. Uh, we have a housing crisis. So we have to look at it from the other end of the telescope. How can we tackle those traffic issues? Uh, and I think Ben's right that actually, you know, the North complain they're going to get a lot of new development, and they are, although it's not exclusively in the North. But they also, because of that, I think there is the opportunity... Uh, it's really hard to put new infrastructure along the existing roads, you know, cycle paths. Our roads are too narrow to just take a slice of that road very often. But brand new uh, 
routes um, for active travel, for walking and uh, cycling, I think could be created. Uh, we could have a network, quite an exciting network. And I know Lindsay de Sumray and her um, E&I committee are really looking at this in, in a fairly uh, uh, proactive way. So it would be interesting to see what comes out of that. And do you think uh, having better infrastructure is that key to encouraging more cyclists on the road? It, it completely is, because safety is the... And it's not just cyclists, it's walkers and, and cyclists and, and disabled, independent disabled travel as well. But yeah, safety fears is the biggest reason why more don't. And I think one of the biggest fear factors that's polarised the debate in Guernsey for too long is it's one or the other. It's walkers or cyclists or cars, but it's not. You actually need to think about it. There are some people that rightly cannot do and should not do without their vehicles. For mobility issue, if you've got an army of small children, if you've got tools. We, so we have to accept that the island has got to work for all modes of transport. So then think about it. What would it look like if there were 20% less vehicle movements? Would you know? Would your commute be easier? Would it be safer and quieter around schools? It's not, it's not that we need to go through a 180. It's that you need to take people on that, on that sort of mobility shift by making them feel safe. And I, I also think from a... You know, from a from a housing delivery point of view, if you play it forward 20 years, 30 years, and, you know, let's assume you build a house and it's going to last for 50 years, 100 years, people aren't going to be owning and driving cars in the way that they do now. You know, we've got shared mobility coming. There's the transition to, to electric vehicles, all other kind of new mobility technologies coming through. So you, you actually need to take a view when you are designing new housing sites where do you put the parking? How do you provision for road infrastructure versus active travel infrastructure versus shared mobility? It's a complicated one, but the point is, right now, Guernsey is way, way behind the curve on even the basics of active travel, so we've not even started that shift yet. We've got some pretty hard deadlines coming up with the EV transition and the phasing out of petrol and diesel. I agree with that, but what's really encouraging to me, is, I think, is the breaking down of the silo mentality until until recently you'd be forgiven to listening to some people thinking there were two tribes that lived in Guernsey motorists and cyclists and of course that was never quite true because most cyclists I think the majority of cyclists own a car they may not use it all the time and quite a few car owners cycle sometimes but now I think with the e-bike revolution you see so many of them around over the last few years to be an explosion that's true even more I think really quite a high percentage of motorists now cycle some of the time so we're dividing we're breaking down that sort of tribal attitude uh, of its motorists against cyclists and the rights of either and it's I think people do realize that we have to work together I mean I own a car I've got an electric car but uh, I only use it a few times a month so um, where if this active travel comes along where I can stop having the capital cost and insurance cost sorry the shared mobility comes along I can just whistle up a, a car when I want to use it on those few occasions that would be absolutely great as far as I'm concerned and but do you think um the the flavor of this current political assembly is that or the, the the people you know you'll be aware of the people that are in there are you sensing much app- because cycling infrastructure is actually surprisingly expensive isn't it Bill, making not so, compared okay. to roads, but <laughs> yeah. anyway, it's uh, but, okay. Do, are you sensing an appetite for, in that direction amongst I, your colleagues? I, I would say natural inclination probably is lower in this assembly than the last assembly. If you just take the the cross section of people, but I think it's quite a populist assembly. So I think if there's a popular demand for it out there, um, th- then that may make quite a big difference. And I think that is starting to grow. But as, housing is probably one of the biggest. I think it's 
it is recognised, I think, by this assembly as probably their biggest strategic demand, um, and the latest census figures shows that's just going to increase. Um, and if they cannot build houses without tackling the the traffic issue, because um, the DPA, you know, like they did with Point Rock, is saying no, sorry, the traffic issue is is you know maybe compounded by these new homes, then they're going to have to tackle it. There's no option. You know, it is it, it's just sequential. We need the houses to allow the houses to be built without producing gridlock we have to tackle the, the traffic issues so I hope they are realists enough to realise that this the time has come because as Ben said well we're way behind on this I mean it's uh we're where Amsterdam was back in the 70s when it was full of cars and clogged up yeah. before they actually did something about it. I think some, something that is, is really interesting and positive is that, you know, as, as the GBG, we've been in conversations with public health colleagues and, and education, and actually there is an understanding of how active travel is a big part, part of the solution. And, you know, as the GBG, we, we plugged into the World Health Organization's models that the numbers around actually kids and adults in Guernsey not reaching their weekly exercise targets and what does that cost the states in terms of spend on treating preventable on illnesses that exercise would prevent we think and this is using you know who models not local models but it's in the region of four to four and a half million pounds a year savings that that you would see if you could get all adults and kids hitting weekly exercise targets so in the way that and, and I, I say this not not to discredit the importance of cars but motor vehicles do not add to Guernsey's, uh, you, you know, they don't give back to the system. Whereas if you provision for active travel, you uh, you start to you start to see value popping up elsewhere. And, you know, it's why Holland spends £30 a year on it per person. Greater London was £17 a year on it. Um, I th- we think in Guernsey, we don't know the numbers, but it's probably pence if, if even that at the moment. So that gives you a magnitude to, to Peter's point of where, you know, we're back in the 70s on this at the moment. And do you worry that we're almost approaching a tipping point where the roads, there's so much, there's so many cars on the road that um, for parents with kids going to the school, they're, they're, they're worried about, they're worried about safety. Uh, it, it, it's, so, uh, it's the opposite, yeah. Why do you drive your car, your kids to school? Well, I have to, it's not safe to go any other way. Why isn't it safe? Well, because there's so many cars around the school. It's such a Gordian knot, it's frustrating because I think lots of people would be happy for their children to walk or cycle to school if most other children did it. So it's how you get over that tipping point is, is, is annoying, but yeah. I think... On, on that too, it's, and if you start to solve the issue around schools and housing sites and particularly what are people's common journeys, then actually, because the problems in Guernsey are at peak hour times or the worst problems at peak hour times. So if you get kids walking and cycling to school, it frees up the parents to, com- to complete their daily journeys uh, by walking or cycling and the whole system starts to breathe a little bit more easier. And then you start to unlock the housing sites, you know, deliver the public health upsides and, and all of that side of things. And do you think, is there another side of it that you sort of need a carrot and maybe, a, you, you know, we've talked about carrots, but is there a stick as well that's needed? There, def- there definitely is. There's, there's, so, there's so many sticks that you could activate, as it were. But, but actually, right now, the carrots are almost non-existent. I mean, you know, I don't, don't want to go into the, to the realm of paid parking, but that is an example of where, you know, it's evidenced world over to promote behavioural change towards active travel. But right now... 
what are you gonna? Yeah, so you, you you make you make it more expensive for people to park, but yet you don't make it safer for them to get into to town. Um, there are simple things that really should happen, like the cycle to work schemes over here, which is essentially a tax incentive to help. Um, you know, it's it's like a, a benefit that your employer buys and uh, a bike for you, and then you pay it back through salary contributions. And you know that's been a really powerful mechanism to uh, to get more people out on their bikes. And we know a lot of the employers over here are calling for that in the private sector. That is. And before moving on from transport, um, I, I would have to pin a little pitch for the bus service. Obviously, it's not active travel, apart from people walk to the bus stop, I guess. Um, but uh, So it's not walking or cycling. But we do have a brilliant bus service, I think. Uh, I, I mean, uh, I would actually like to go the extra the extra mile, if you like, and make it free, because actually the vast majority of the funding of it comes from the taxpayer anyway. And I think a fearless bus service would just be that, the sort of carrot which really could get you know a lot of uh, journeys... Um, Done by uh, not by not by car, and once you the congestion starts to drop, then you know the whole island becomes a more pleasant place, including for motorists. Motorists don't really like to be caught up in congestion, so it's for motorists' um, benefit as well as anything else that we want to get car use down somewhat. And I wanted just to stay with transport for one other uh, issue because uh, it's quite serendipitous that we, we've got you here today, Ben, because. This, there's been a big announcement today about the changes to the highway code and they, it, it is coming into effect in Guernsey as well from Saturday. Correct, yeah. Well, and it, it, it's a little bit confusing, but I, I, as I understand it, the basic concept is that people who are walking or cycling, they're going to have a little bit more priority. Is that right? That's correct. So what's, what the, the fundamental change to the highway code is the hierarchy of road users, which basically means that those on the road that could do the most damage have the most responsibility to protect the most vulnerable. So at the at the top of the hierarchy, if you like, you've got disabled road users, you've got walkers, cyclists, uh, pedestrians, cyclists, um, mopeds, cars, vans, big trucks. And, and essentially what this is all about is giving everybody equal rights to use the network, um, but also equal responsibility to look out for each other. And it's a it's a really important shift. And, it, and, it, and it's come, you know, obviously in the uh, in, in here in Guernsey, we take the UK's highway code and then add our own layer on top of it. But it but it's come the changes have come from the UK because of the commitment to, to support active and sustainable travel. So can, can I just come in on that? So yeah. one, one of the interesting things for me is not, uh, it's great that, that pedestrians and cyclists would be given greater priority because they're more vulnerable, but it's the more vulnerable first. So the pedestrians actually get priority over the cyclists. Yeah. As a cyclist, I always have a dilemma. I, I'm a bell user. And I have to say, I go through the lanes and the reaction from uh, pedestrians is really mixed. Some say, thank you very much. Not everybody uses their bell. Thank you for letting us. Others sort of stare at me as if I'm sort of been demanding they get out the way by ringing my bell. So I don't know what the answer is to that. I don't know whether Ben has a uh, etiquette. Do you use your bell or not when you're coming up, particularly when you're coming up behind um, people who can't see you? I do. I definitely do use my bell, but I tend to. I tend to try and start with a shout of good morning or good afternoon or coming through or the, or the likes of that. But it's a really important point. I mean, you know, if you look at the court of social media this morning, there's a, there's obviously a lot of anger about highway code change. As, as you would expect, um, you know, it's 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 snuck up on people. It's you know, it brings that old car versus bicycles debate. But actually, and you know, I say this on behalf of the Guernsey Bicycle Group, cyclists have a big part to play in being more responsible road users as well. I mean, you know, we, we see and I see a lot of a lot of cycling that could be a lot more thoughtful, thoughtful and, and courteous than it, than it is. So everybody's got a part to play here. 
And going back to the bell, sometimes pedestrians have got, uh, you know, they might be listening to a podcast, which is an extra complication, isn't it? That's yeah. absolutely true. Sometimes I ring a bell and there's no reaction. <laughs> and then you see the little white things yeah, in their ears. You're yeah. like, ah, OK, yeah. that's why. But there we go. Um, yeah. yeah. And so, uh, and just so I understand the, these highway code things. So, say I'm crossing, you know, in front of the town church. It's not a zebra crossing, but there's a sort of a crossing, and you try, yeah, you, and you sort of try and catch a motorist eye to see if they might let you go across. Does that mean that they are meant to stop at that? There is that how it works? Right. Well, I'm going to say this not as a dig at traffic and highways or anybody else, but actually, there's a lot of crossings here that are substandard and don't conform so that for example would be a much safer crossing if it was a zebra crossing a toucan crossing or or not a crossing at all but it's really confusing for people because actually nobody knows quite what you're supposed to do in places like that so i think you know what and this is where it's going to be really important for the for the local updates to to the highway code is is to is is to sort of reflect and recognize where there are bits that don't stack up quite consistently with the uk changes or actually where some of our infrastructure is not quite clear enough and so you know whether it's signs line painting i'm not sure but there is going to be a handful of sites like that that'll need sorting out Interesting. All right. Should we change the subject a little bit? I know we've sort of mentioned housing a little bit, but Deputy Roffey, you've been very interested in watching the progress of these plans for the uh, up at the Catow Hospital and because and particularly uh, about with the green fields around that site. Yeah, I, I was really shocked when I saw what I thought was a, a sort of official announcement or at least quasi-official announcement through the pages of the Guernsey Press saying 90 substantial homes, family homes, uh, optify bedrooms, not all of them via bedrooms, with gardens and parking. Because I know, I know the site, I know that would take up uh, an enormous amount of agricultural land around there. Um, interestingly, I had written about the cat outside and some other matters to PNR on behalf of, uh, environment, uh, of um, uh, Employment and Social Security, and I've recently had a reply from Peter Fairbrush saying, no, no, there are no plans, we haven't looked at any plans, it was just one idea, it stimulated debate. Um, so I, I think people out there might be quite surprised by that, because it certainly sounded like an official <laughs> announcement to me, and I was pushing to know what the footprint was going to be. Apparently there is no footprint because there are no plans, and it's not even decided that's how the cattle will be used they're still open to other ideas like social housing which ess would like to see there inside the footprint of the developed area at the moment so um i think they've sort of de-announced the announcement that uh, that the press got a bit of a scoop on so i'm sorry about that um um, well, it was a, it was a letter from Deputy Mahoney. Actually, it was a letter, but and, and it did say, you know, policy the at the end. It was Deputy Mahoney of Policy and Resources Committee. Yes, uh, and 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 Policy and Resources are still saying to us, yes, we knew that was happening, um, but it was never really a fixed uh, plan. It was just an idea, and it stimulated debate. Isn't that good? Well, I think it is good, but I think if it hadn't been for some of the house of outrage, it would that would have been taken out of the plan and moving forwards. And I hope they do think again, because agriculture, though we're really desperate to see more housing, and the latest census figures show that we need even more than I thought, um, uh, you know, we do have to protect our, our green and open areas, and, and there are brownfield sites that we can start on first. So um, I think taking agricultural priority areas would just be an outrage. Because it was interesting, the uproar about it, wasn't there? We heard from lots of people who, uh, uh, you know, really wanted to keep those, those 
those, those green fields. Yeah, I mean, those of us from a certain age remember Guernsey being, I mean, it was never a, a rural idyll. We've always had quite a few, quite a high population density, uh, but we remember it being a lot less developed than it is now. And so it's regrettable to me that we're having to build hundreds of new homes every year just to keep pace. But the base, least we can do is some proper town planning to have uh, yes, the, certainly the, the connectivity, the, the, the active travel routes, but also just making sure the sites we use are, where possible, not green uh, virgin fields. Because, um, you know, though, apart from the fact that I care about the agricultural industry, it's, it's just biodiversity, but it's also just quality of life, isn't it? We like to see the hedgerows and, and the open fields. So why build on them when there are other options available? Was that was that something that you were interested to hear about in the media, Ben? Yeah, very much so. I mean, as a, you know, as a parent of young kids, I'm I'm thinking about what's their future here in Guernsey. How will they, you know, get get on that the housing ladder? How will they meet their their housing needs? But also, actually, there's a, a generational shift in what people want from life, expect from the quality of life. You know, the whole work life balance is shifting um, but how you move around your environment and having seeing open spaces is so important and I think it, it's going to be you know, if I think about the, the site um, by Patronary Road that is the if you're coming in from the sort of Capels area that's the last bit of green land you see before you get into an already pretty extensive urban area so yes it from a from a pure pragmatic delivery of housing it might make sense as, as a as a housing site but actually, what does that do in terms of how people feel, the quality of life, you know, perceptions of Guernsey as the sort of sprawl extends? So I think, you know, my my, my view is is that you you, you prioritise brownfield sites and you, you know, you obviously deliver on the immediate housing needs, but you also deliver on a set of housing that meets the sort of the, the future aspirations of the next generation and the future economic opportunities of Guernsey, because there's no point you know, having having the wrong mix of houses that is going to take Guernsey in an unsustainable trajectory. And that was another of the aspects you were concerned about, wasn't it? That you you want state's own land to be maybe reserved for, for social housing rather than yes. five bedroom places. Yeah, I mean, I think the the whole housing market has demand. So I'm not against the building of substantial homes for the for the, for the private market. All I'm saying is that actually the private developers have quite a lot of sites. They've quite got some of them have got quite significant land banks. Some of them have got sites that have got planning permission already. Others that they know have got planning frameworks which will allow permission missions to be granted so but the GHA doesn't like okay they've now got Kenilworth Winery as well as Fontaine Winery so they have something to get on with but we know they don't have sufficient sites to meet the demand for affordable housing so I think precious state zone sites should be focused on that because the private developers are going to go for the developments with a maximum profit margin no shame in that that's understandable they're businesses uh, but we have to I think step into the breach and look at the intermediate market and the affordable market and as I keep hinting the figures that have just come out from the the, the, the latest e-census shows that our last four years our population has been growing like a train I mean the net migration at the moment is about 400 per year um, slightly less than that population growth because we don't we've got an excess of deaths over births, but still, you know, sort of 365 or something a year of growth. Um, so the pent-up demand we've already got for the local population, plus the, the growing population, to build the number of homes to satisfy that, 
you, get, you start getting into the catch-22 of do we have the construction industry capacity to actually build the homes that we need for, for the people that are, that, that are you know, coming in. And this is not anti-migration. I really like diversity. I like to see people from outside. But I, I think we do have to realise that there are infrastructural issues that come with population growth. Now, the Chamber of Commerce, IOD, are going to say, population growth, great, stimulates demand. Also, we don't have enough with the workforce. We have workforce problems because people have got older, generally, there's fewer people in the typical working age population, although I hate the idea that we sort of write people off at 65 and say they're not going to work anymore. Uh, and, and, and I understand it from their point of view, but there is another side which we have to cater, not just housing, but in all sorts of ways for the infrastructure, uh, and there's no point in creating those problems. And population is going to come up in the States later this year, isn't, isn't there? There's some sort of debate going to, going to happen. Yeah, I'm on the working party on that. Oh, okay. I'm, <laughs> I, I, and I'm probably, I'm probably at one end of the spectrum there of saying that actually um, population growth, I don't, I'm not against, sort of a, I think we're going to have to have some modest growth in order to maintain the workforce we need. And that's not just to do with making money. It's to, we're going to need more carers. If, if, the the issue is not going to be actually how big our population growth would be, but can we attract these people? Because there are labour shortages throughout Western Europe now because the demographic changes are happening everywhere. So we used to think, yeah, if we open the doors, lots of people from England are going to want to come here. Not sure that's true anymore, you know. A, our housing is really expensive, uh, and B, the, you know, there isn't much unemployment now in, in Western Europe. So, uh, and particularly, you know, the... the Areas like hospitality it used to be able to. There used to be lots of people from the EU wanting to come here. Now they have, you know, particularly in Eastern Europe, far more better prospects than they used to have. And then Brexit and the whole thing of needing to get a visa and not feeling as welcome as they did, as, as, as putting them off as well. So interesting times as far as population dilemma is concerned. I think bring it back to the sort of housing delivery point actually one of the one of the biggest barriers to, to, to bringing people here is having certainty that your future housing needs can can be met as your as your stages in life changes and actually whilst we've got some immediate priorities to solve around affordable housing we need to start thinking about the delivery mechanisms and this is probably states private sector partnerships where you you know you should share, share the risks share the upsides where you start to build that housing pipeline that tracks where our population is likely to go and future economic opportunities because if we don't do that then in another 10 years we're going to set up come up against another buffer and then another buffer so apart from the, the immediate there needs to be that the future housing pipeline piece as well I think that's very very important to look at. Yeah, well, hopefully some some big announcements on that this year. Hopefully, and uh, uh, buying the states buying a boat that was something you flagged up, <laughs> Deputy Murphy, that you I, were I think they probably in. want to call it a ship rather than a boat. <laughs> <laughs> Boats are something that goes to her, I suppose. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've got no idea what exactly what this plan is, and I'm not saying it's a bad plan. It might be a really good plan, uh, but it's really, I think, a part of. I think the bigger picture I'm thinking here is. Is the states of deliberation almost getting sidelined on so many things by PNR? Are they behaving a little bit like a cabinet? I think sometimes it feels like you're you're in the states, but you're not really in government. Um, and the fact that they, I don't know. I think it, you don't get much change out of twenty million if you want to get any kind of sort of rope hacks vessels is what they're talking about. Uh, that sort of investment. 
I don't mind P&R working up all of the details, commercially sensitive, doing it behind closed doors, but not the idea that they don't believe they have to come to the States for an endorsement. I find extraordinary. I think it really is a shift in the way our government works. And um, I know they can probably do it under the rules because it will be an investment. Um, they'll buy it, lease it back to Condor, and it will be an investment rather than a capital purchase. But still, I mean, that's the letter of the law rather than the spirit of the law. I think if we're going to shell out 20 million quid uh, circa on, on, on a ship, that is a big step and the States of Liberation should endorse it. Mm. And uh, finally, Liberation Day celebrations. We all like to have a good knees up on on, on May the 9th. And uh, there's going to be some changes, isn't there, to the May the 9th this year? And I I think you're you're a little bit disappointed about it, Deputy. Well, well, I'm not disappointed about having, uh, you know, encouraging celebrations in in the parishes. I mean, I live in St Andrews. They've got a tradition of doing their own thing at times of the last post in different places. I am slightly disappointed that it won't be, uh, if it's pandemic driven, I understand, but if it's going to be a permanent change, that there won't be a, a sort of big focus on the seafront. Because it's not just because it's uh, St. Peter Port's our capital. I mean, but that is where the people of Guernsey in 1945 flocked to meet the liberating troops that were coming ashore there. And it was trying to recreate that spirit, I think, over the decades. I think if we lose that, we'll have lost something quite special. I don't always go in. I'm a bit of uh, a commodion. I sometimes sort of just get busy in my garden if it's a nice day. But uh, if I am going to take part in the celebration, I, I do think that focus is nice in, in St Peter Paul. And I think we'll lose something if we move away from that. I really do. What about you, Ben? Do you like a game of Crown and Anchor on the piers? Oh, de- yeah, no, de- definitely. Uh, look, I think it's important to, to preserve the, the town celebrations and acknowledge the significance of the place. But, but actually, it was also really nice to see more activities across the island last year as well. So it's a balance of both, for sure. All right. That's lovely. We'd better leave it there because I know you're, you're two very busy men and you've got uh, things to get off to. So uh, thank you very much for coming in. And thank you for listening to the Guernsey Press Politics Podcast. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Bella.